Well, uh, to say we are humbled to be here would certainly not adequately express everything that Charlene and I feel for the privilege to be here uh, to worship with you and to preach the word to you. Before I speak, I, I want to ask what attribute of God has been an anchor for you in the last week, the last month? Or maybe an attribute to which you've clung for the last year. What attribute? I want to take just a few so you can share the things in God's character that have been an anchor for you. Just call out some of the attributes, an attribute particularly that has become an anchor for you. Faithfulness. His strength. Unchanging. God of hope. Long suffering. Steadfast love. Mercy's new every morning. Great is God's faithfulness. Couple more. His patience. I can relate. I shared with the pastors on Friday. I think on the fruit of the Spirit, a lot of them I am in out of grad school. Patience, I'm still getting kicked out of Head Start. And uh, my wife could attest to that at times. I think I have it. Then I drive through Chicago. <laughs> and uh, it, it's the depth of my depravity is revealed uh, again. One more. His sovereignty. Aren't you glad God is not pacing over world conditions, he is absolutely in control. Well, I want to thank Pastor Brown and uh, the leadership team here for uh, organizing this weekend. And we do indeed pray that we can be a blessing to you. As you saw, our text is there in Second Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is talking in that chapter about putting off the, the body of this flesh. I have here an old carpenter ruler I found at an Amish hardware store in Ohio. And if each inch on its 36 inches represented two years of life, that represents life. In other words, when you were born, according to Moses in Psalm 90, we have been promised Three score and ten years. Uh, we have been instructed to live that time frame in, in wisdom. But if by reason of strength you go beyond that uh, three score and ten, it's by God's grace. But when you were born, that's the length of time that you had. Uh, then uh, childhood is gone. Now you're 12 years old. Uh, you can remember that. Uh, you remember how anxious you were to get out of grade school and then get into junior high and then high school and then you're through high school and now you're 24 years old and reality is hitting. You're out of high school, finished college or your trade school or you're uh, five years now into your work life. Then you're 36 years old. Your midlife. 
And uh, you think, where did that go? And you still are thinking back like you're still in high school. And now you're 48. You're thinking, wow, where did that go? My wife and I were invited to speak uh, at a, a camp. A friend of mine who had wanted to speak to me about salvation uh, had come to know the Lord. And he wanted me to come with my wife to his deer camp. He had 17,000 acres and a huge log cabin. And uh, he said, I have retired millionaire friends who are afraid to die, but they will not admit it. I want you to come and speak to us. And we pulled in and there were these huge motor homes, these 500,000 to a million dollar motor homes. And Charlene said, we're in the wrong place. I said, hang on, honey, we'll get through this one too. Definitely not in our <laughs> class. And I had my ruler. I said, I'm going to speak on reality and relationships. And I said, the reality is life is disappearing. And the lady sitting next to my wife, I got to this point on the ruler. And he, she said, stop, this is getting scary. I said, some of you better be scared. You're off the end of the ruler already. And, uh, and I said... <laughs> That's where Charlene and I are now. <laughs> and then you click down, now I'm 60. And I was preaching at a church, uh, and right near the church was a cemetery. I got there about 30 minutes before Sunday school, so I drove into the cemetery. And I looked at tombstones. There was a date, a dash, and a date. 1950 dash 2000, 1942 dash, but that dash between dates was everything that represented life for that person. Life is a dash between dates. And everything that is that dash between the dates on that tombstone represents what was packed into that life. Your life is a dash between dates. And Paul was talking in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 about putting off this body of flesh. Putting off mortality and putting on immortality. And as we see what he is saying here, and we will begin reading there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we see that the... Word of God is, is giving the instruction. Verse 11. Well, let's, let's actually begin reading up in verse 6. Therefore, we are always confident, and you can follow in your Bibles there. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. In other words, while we're still in this dash. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. This is my text, verse 9. For we make it our goal to please him. You'll see the title, living to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive that which is due to us for the things done while we are in the body, 
whether good or bad. So I want to see three things out of the life of Paul that we can make application for our lives. And I want to take out of this text the three things that I think, at least three things that we learned from Paul. First of all, I want to examine Paul's motive. And we see three things that he emphasizes on what motivated him. And the first thing is the realization of accountability at the Bema. And so he is saying, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says, though we are saved, we are eternally sealed. There is a judgment coming for believers, not a judgment for sin, but a judgment to test the worth of our works after we became believers. A sin payment was done when Christ cried, it is finished. When he paid the full payment for sin, when he became sin for us, that sin penalty was paid. So this time of at the Bema is Paul was saying, I want to live to bring pleasure to him in light of the fact that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so what is he saying here? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So the works that we have after we become believers will be tested. Now, let's go quickly back to First uh, Corinthians chapter 3. And if you're able to turn back there in your, in your Bibles to First Corinthians chapter 3, I, I'm not going to park here a long time. But I think it's worth the examination where Paul is saying uh, what this time is. Uh, what is this time uh, at the at the Bema? What actually does that mean? Uh, it will be a time of revelation. Now, how do we know what these works will be? Number one, you'll see it is a time of revelation. First Corinthians chapter three and verse thirteen. Because he said these things will be revealed. Look, look there in verse, uh, yeah, I believe it's verse, verse 13, chapter 3 and verse 13. Their works will be shown for us what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed by fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. But if he has been survived, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So how do you know the, the test, that time of revelation? Uh, it will be the test of, uh, I'm not sure this is clicking right now, the, the, the test of, of attitude. And I'm just going to click through these because I, I'm not going to park at this point. And uh, we'll just put all three. The, the My test of attitude, my test of authority, my test of ability. Uh, Paul has said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he said, I am not going to be rewarded for going to the Gentiles with the gospel. Uh, Paul says, I was arrested and assigned the Gentile world. Paul says, it's not a choice I made, it was a compulsion that was laid on me. So he said, I am not going to be rewarded for going to the Gentile world. And we'll see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, then what then is my reward? 
if I do this willingly. In other words, the reward is going to be based on the attitude of my service. I remember years ago at Calvary, where I I told my wife one time, I want to be in ministry, but I, I just want to be the custodian. You you vacuum a room and you you clean it up and close the door, say to Telestai, it is finished. And I said, you feel like go home? Do you feel like something has been accomplished? I said, I don't think I'm getting anything done. And Charlene always reminds me, that's dumb talk. Uh, she always reminded me when I was dumb talking. But what was happening, what God was doing was doing an examination in my heart. And I did a verse-by-verse, word-for-word study in First in Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter of the Bible. And I began to realize that love pulls rank on study. It pulls rank on service. It pulls rank on speaking ability. Yea, though I give my body to be burned, indicated they did work with junior high kids on that first journey. Uh, and I and I do think uh, that, again, you can read into that as much as you might want to. But if you've been in youth work, you know that's what that verse means. And uh, you know what I began to realize? I'm serving, so-called sacrificing, burning the candle at both ends, and the realization, if I'm not doing that out of love, it's a zero. You got up this morning. What was your attitude in preparation for coming to church? Did you have that anticipation of what God is going to do? Did you have the anticipation, Lord, I cannot believe it's another Lord's Day, and I get to honor you, and I get to worship you, and I get to praise you out of love for you? Or did you come saying, I've survived last Sunday, and I believe God will give me grace to make it through another one. At least the Lions are playing this afternoon. What is the attitude? I'll tell you what, it was devastating to me. Because I realized you can be busy, serving, busy. But if it's not out of love, agape love, it's a zero. And then by authority, Second Timothy, you're not crowned except you strive lawfully. I cannot go willy-nilly. I have to stay under the marching orders of the one who redeemed me. And then by abilities. And you can examine that yourself. Are you utilizing the gifting that God has given to you? You senior citizens, greatest unused natural resource in our churches today are godly senior citizens. This is no time for you to put down the baton. You are still in this race and we need to make the handoff to the next generation. Charlene and I do a lot of the Maylox Manor retreats, we call it, that's what I call them, senior saint retreats. All we need is big jugs of Maylox and chips and, and pace, pacemaker batteries. And, uh, but boy, do we have a ball. They're like, I call them juniors with money. And, uh, but you know what? You cannot sit. And say, okay, let the young folks do it. No, we need godly adults, godly senior citizens. And David prayed, oh God, don't let me die until I have shown you faithful to this generation and shown you mighty to this generation. So your abilities 
are still very active. And then it's also going to be a time of reward. And uh, a time of reward, I think I'll just go ahead and, and uh, I'll just lecture this and let you follow through on this because this clicker is not working here. Number two on your outline, it's a time of reward. And Paul says, if a man's work shall survive the fire, he shall receive a reward. And then number three, it's a time of regret. He shall suffer loss. So there is a time when you come to know Christ the Savior. You can't take the pardon and put it in your pocket and head to the pig pen. You have to say, oh God, I must now walk in love and obedience. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. And behold, all things are become new. So Paul lived with the motive of accountability at the Bema. Secondly, he was motivated by the fear of the Lord. And we see where he says in verse 11, where he says, For no one can, <clears throat> back in Second Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 11, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. So Paul was motivated here by the fear of the Lord. And, and the fear of the Lord to me has three faces in, in the scriptures. And uh, for Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 29, I believe, gives all three faces of the fear of the Lord and how we are to worship and how our activities are to be. Uh, Moses was responsible for leading the people of God and God is telling Moses, Oh, that there were a heart in them that they would fear me. That's the awesomeness of God's character. That they would keep my commandments. That is obedience to his commands. That it might be well with them. There's a realization of consequences. But I think the fear of the Lord is manifested in those three aspects and in those three elements. And when we begin to realize the awesomeness of God's character that leads us to the obedience of his commands that causes us to realize the consequences, Paul was saying, knowing the fear of God, we function in this way. When God told Noah to build the ark, Noah being warned of God, moved with fear. I don't think Noah was... In shaking fear of God, I think when his God, whom he loved so perfectly, spoke to him, I think his heart was lifted up in awe and worship, realizing I must obey what he has given to me. And I think the first face of worship and fear of the Lord manifested to you is the worship of the awesomeness of his character. That's why you have singing and praise at the beginning of a service to prepare the hearts, to lift our hearts up in awe and worship to him. And then thirdly, Paul was motivated by the love of Christ. Uh, verse 14 of this chapter. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And that he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And Paul then, thirdly, was motivated by the love of Christ. 
Not only the realization, I'm going to give accounting at the Bema. Not only the fear of God, but also the love of God. And Paul was not speaking of his unshakable love, but God's unshakable love for him. Aren't you glad that our eternal destiny is not dependent upon the consistency of our love? But he loved us with a perfect love. He loves us in perfection. And Paul says that has literally boxed me in that I might function in love to him. Now, secondly, let's look at Paul's ministry. What was Paul's ministry? And we go down here to verse 18 now of this same chapter. And we examine another phase of what drove Paul in this context. And he says, all this is from God. First, uh, here in chapter 5 and verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So now we see Paul's ministry here is the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Wherefore, we are Christ's ambassadors, that though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we see Paul's ministry of reconciliation. First, we see God is the author of this. He said all things are from God. This is the genitive of source. Our salvation is from God. Christ is the agent of our reconciliation by Jesus Christ. And we are the ambassadors of that reconciliation. We are to go into the world with the truth. We are to go into the world with the word of God, into the world with the gospel. We are to fulfill great commission living. After the disciples realized that Christ was indeed raised, they said, he told us, when I am raised, meet me in Galilee. And they beelined for Galilee, and at Galilee, they received the Great Commission. And God says, now I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait until you are endued with power to do Great Commission living for me. But we are now the ambassadors of that ministry of reconciliation. There are four terms that describe salvation. And we'll just have them click these four terms up. There's propitiation. You see these on your sheet there. What is propitiation? That is taking place at the altar. That is the ceremonial part that happened. This year I'm studying in more detail the upper room discourse. Uh, Christ knew that he was coming down to the end of time. His time here on this earth. He told the disciples, go into Jerusalem. A man will meet you. Uh, we are going to be meeting in a prepared room. And what was he doing in John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17? What he was doing, he was giving them his final words. And I'm going to study in detail this year. One of my side studies is that upper room discourse. Again, in more detail, what was the burden on the heart of Christ before he was leaving the assignment to the disciples? 
And as he gets in that upper room, he unloads to them the very things. And interestingly enough, as when he came into the room, they were debating who was going to be the greatest. And he takes a basin and a towel and starts washing feet. And then he begins to instruct them. In the middle of this, Judas Iscariot is identified, him and Christ identify the fact that Judas is the betrayer. He slips out of that upper room. He goes and plans his betrayal with the high priests. Remember, Jerusalem was filled with well over a million people, probably way over a million people that had come in for the Passover. So it wasn't just a matter of slipping out. You're pushing through crowds, and and Judas knew where Christ would be going after this upper room discourse. And after Christ prayed that high priestly prayer there in John chapter 17, he leaves the upper room, goes to Gethsemane. And in Gethsemane, he tells the disciples, come and pray with me. My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. And he goes a little further and prays and he comes back and the disciples are sleeping. I would have been too, more than likely. Keep in mind, they had been up now for probably a few nights without sleep. This was a very busy week. This Passion Week was a very busy week, and I don't think the disciples got much sleep. Christ was so burdened because he realized soon was coming his separation from the Father. He goes back and prays again. Sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, so emotionally stressed. It was like blood was pushing out of his pores. And he said, Father, if there is another way for for salvation to happen, let it be, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And when that final surrender is made, and he in his humanness, and his deity come to the fact that there has to be this separation never had happened. He leaves the Gethsemane greatly stressed and Judas comes and plants a kiss of betrayal and said, you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And then Judas gets his 30 pieces of silver I think Judas thought, and this is only my opinion, I think Judas thought that Christ would do what he had always done. People would fall on their back. He would disappear from their midst. I think when Judas realized this was actually going to happen, he goes back to the priest and says, I have sinned and I betrayed innocent blood. Here's the money back. They said, that's your business. We have nothing to do with that. And Judas throws the 30 pieces of silver to the ground, goes out and hangs himself. Jesus, in the meantime, now is heading to the cross, falls beneath the load of that cross, and Simon Cyrene comes and helps to bear that load, and then he is nailed to that cross and placed on that cross. The mockery is going on. He is being punched. Oh, he's a king. Let's put a crown on his head. A crown of thorns and the blood would burst out. You study the sayings on the cross. And then at 12 noon, it would be just like an hour and a half or no, suddenly this world goes dark from noon to three. 
the afternoon. I mean total darkness. Put yourself in the place of those centurions. That was their job. They did crucifixions. That was old hat to them, but this one was different. They'd never seen one like this. They've never seen such a melee. They've never seen such a horrible choice made. Release a criminal and nail an innocent person to the cross. Then when it goes dark, there's a cry, surely this is the Son of God. What was happening in that three hours of darkness? The full wrath of God was being poured out on the Son. Where was God at Calvary when the Son was being crucified? He was there pouring out His full wrath on the Son. Why? Because you wouldn't, I were born in sin. And the only way God's holiness and God's love were intention, the only way this could be solved was for the incarnate Son leave the throne of the Father to be born in a feed trough and then live that sinless life. And 33 years later, nailed to a cross and the full wrath of God being poured out on the Son so that you and I would never have to know the wrath of God. That's why when an invitation is given for you to accept Christ, because that is the only way, because the infinite one in a finite period of time paid our infinite penalty. If I die in my sin, if I die without Christ, I will pay infinity, never ending. But the never ending one in a finite period of time paid my infinite penalty. And in that three-hour period of time, what was going on? Propitiation work. Total satisfaction of the holiness of God so that we couldn't once then know the love of God. Because when man sinned, there was spiritual death. There was separation from God. And the only way that we could be reconciled to God is through the propitiation work of the Son. That was took place at the altar. Old Testament... Everything at the altar, the sacrifice that are made, the application of the blood, every detail. You labor through Leviticus, and then you come to the book of Hebrews. And what does it say? Once for all. And I told our students sometimes, even the goats were more relaxed. You know why? Because salvation's payment was made. No more penalty. For sin. That's propitiation. If you're here this morning without Christ and you've never acknowledged your need, you die in that condition. You will pay endless eternity separated from God. But because the endless one paid your penalty, the gift is offered to you. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. How foolish would we be to think we can work to satisfy this Holy One. When we were rotten from the top of our head to the sole of our feet until we came to know Him by grace. And then we see redemption. That's the marketplace. We've been redeemed. We've been bought back from the marketplace. Then there is the justification, the judicial statement that was made where we have been declared not guilty. Have you doubted since you were saved? 
and the accuser comes to you and said, it's not that simple. Let's suppose you were uh, convicted of something and the court proceeding goes on and finally the judge drops the gavel, not guilty, you're free to go home. You get home and the phone rings, the prosecutor called you, said, it's not that simple, you must reappear in court tomorrow. You go back before the judge and the judge says, what are you doing here again? Well, the prosecutor said, the case is not done. No, the judge said, no, you've been yesterday declared not guilty. Go home and enjoy your freedom. Get home and the phone rings again and the prosecutor said, the case is still open. The best way to keep the prosecutor from getting through is stay on the line with your defense attorney. Prosecutor can't get through. Because the one who won the case declared us not guilty. We are free. And then there is the work of reconciliation. That's his family. That's personal. That's we have been reconciled to God. How? By the finished work of Christ. And Paul says, I now have the ministry of reconciliation. Adopted. Now, let's close with number three, Paul's mindset. I think this is the third thing we learn from Paul's model in this chapter. What was his mindset? Let's go back up to verse 15. And he died for all. Follow this clearly. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul's mindset, first of all, was Christ-centered, not self-centered. It was Christ-centered, not self-centered. Why are we living? What are, what are we living for? You say, I've accepted Christ as my Savior. But have you now gone out of love in, in submission to him? And out of love you have gone and say, God, I want to know more of you. I want to know more of your word. I want to know more of your truth. Or have you simply gotten to a point where you say, no, I'm, I'm satisfied. Long as I have my, long as I have my things in my way. I remember some years back, I got home from prayer meeting and phone rang about nine o'clock at night and said, Les, you need to come to campus. Uh, and I could tell the call was very serious. And they said, there's been an accident. And uh, I drove to campus and found out that a group, our extension ministry coming from uh, the church in Stevenson, uh, had come, and it was about, I'm thinking three weeks or so before commencement, the time of the year when the snow was melting during warm days, and then at night it would get below freezing, and the water would run across the road in some spots. You'd have bare pavement for miles then one spot where water would run across the road and this group, three vehicles traveling, coming back from their extension there in Stevenson, Michigan, uh, about a, two miles from campus had come to a bend. The lead van, which was a borrowed church van that the church had given to this extension group, it, it came and hit this patch of ice on this corner going 35 miles an hour all Three witnessed they were going 35 miles an hour. Van turned over. Very freak thing. 
But two of our, our graduating seniors were killed. And uh, one died instantly. And the other one, I went to Green Bay Hospital. I was holding the dad's hand while he was holding his daughter's hand as she was slipping into eternity. And uh, you're, you're in shock. This girl had already committed to go to communist China. She was within graduation about three weeks away. She would be home about a week or two, and then she was going to communist China. She had given her life to go there. The other girl was going back to the East Coast, both godly girls, both graduating seniors, both determined to serve God with their whole lives. We went to Megan's funeral in New York, and uh, we were at Megan's family home that night, and Megan's dad came out of her bedroom. Her, her roommates had packed all of her things up and uh, in the box, things that were on her desk. And one of the things on her desk was Megan's journal. And her dad came and handed me Megan's journal and said, let's read this. Page after page, to her last days, page after page in her journal, I have no more time left in life to live half-hearted surrender. I must abandon to him. Statement like that, page after page after page, building the, reflecting the intimacy. That noontime at a table of eight at lunch, she was telling the girls eating with her, just think what it will be like to see him face to face. Not knowing then that within nine or ten hours she would be in the Lord's presence. Her, her dash ended. And a few words that I said at the funeral, I said it's not the duration of our dash, it's the donation some people have long duration but make virtually no donation after they get saved. These girls, both of these girls were godly and had committed and, and had made tremendous donations. Over a thousand people at that funeral in that rented high school gym. Over a hundred hands were lifted for prayer regarding need for salvation. While I'm reading Megan's journal, much going in my mind, I thought if my last two weeks somebody took my journal and I was gone and, and somebody read what was driving me for the last two weeks, would my journal reflect what Megan's journal reflected? What would your last two weeks of journaling be regarding your passion for him? Paul had a mindset no longer live unto ourselves, but unto him which died for them. Secondly, it was internal, not external. If we go back quickly, just to chapter 4 of Second Corinthians, and you will find that the internal... Look in verse 16 of Second Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. What was Paul's focus? Outwardly we were wasting away. Internally we were being built. And are you, are you being built internally? Are you feeding your soul? Are you coming to a point where you say, the word of God is precious to me. The word of God means so much to me. 
And then, last of all, it was eternal, not temporal. Verses 17 and 18 of chapter 4. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, or uh, 17 and 18, for our light affliction. Momentary troubles are achieving for us eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul was saying, I focus eternally, not temporally. Well, how, how eternal is our gaze? How eternal is what we are doing? You say, less, but it gets so tiring. This dash gets so tiring. Have you ever just feel like chucking it all? Say, I'm worn out. Vanderlei de Lima, if those of you who followed Olympics, Vanderlei de Lima was running in the 04 Summer Olympics back in Athens where the original course was run for the marathon, the 26.2 miles. Vanderlei was with seven miles left so far ahead that it was evident that he had his gold medal won unless something pretty rare happened. And those of you who follow Olympics will remember this replay over and over and over again. And you could... You could look up Vanderlei de Lima, Google Vanderlei de Lima, the Brazilian runner. As he was running and people were cheering him on along that course, a madman from Europe came out of the crowd and tackled Vanderlei de Lima right in the middle of the race. Dragged him out of the, off the race course and, and Vanderlei was fighting to get loose and you'll see this replay over and over. The crowd helped pull this maniac away and Vanderlei got back in the race. Baldini from Italy passed him. Another man passed him. Baldini got gold. This other man got silver and, and Vanderlei got the bronze, the most famous bronze medal winner ever. I was given this illustration at a men's conference in Pennsylvania and a man came up who had Googled this. He said, are you aware that Vanderlei de Lima got the highest award that is possible from the International Olympic Committee. It's above the gold. And it's rarely granted. But Vanderlei de Lima got this highest award that the IOC gives because he got blindsided and didn't quit. He got back in the race and kept going. You know, we go through life sometimes and we get blindsided. We didn't see that coming. What are you going to do? Paul says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. All perfect tenses. I've been finishing. I've been fighting. I've been keeping. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown, which the righteous judge will give. Have you ever felt like I'm done? And then you say, the grace of God is so mighty. I have an eternal gaze, not a temporal gaze. Abraham said he looks for a city whose builder and maker is God. Matt Emans in that same Summer Olympics was American, had his gold medal won. All he had to do was come near the center on the target. You can, you can Google Matt Emans, 04 Summer Olympics. And I remember watching, and I had my secretary uh, then pull this story up. I said, I want to make sure we remember this, as I think I remember this. 
and uh, the the story was pulled up. I still have the sheets in that in my file. And I remember Matt Evans drew up. He breathed, shot bullseye. Nothing came up on the screen. The judges were befuddled. Matt Evans looked confused. And then the judges went disqualified. What happened in his excitement that he had won his gold medal, he hit bullseye in the wrong target. He hit the target next to his and not his target. And I've used that with businessmen. I've used that with men. It said bullseye income, bullseye retirement, bullseye this, bullseye that. Stand before the Lord. Wrong target. Wrong targets. You were not living for what was eternal. And that'll be quite a revelation. Paul had a mindset that was eternal, not temporal. Let's bow our heads together as we close in prayer. Father, I I pray that you would take the truth these things from your word that would be impacting of our hearts. Father, those here who know your Son as Savior and have been growing in that, God, give them strength and focus to keep on keeping on. Then for those perhaps who are here without Christ, that there would be that realization of the eternal separation from God. And yet the problem could be solved so simply by them acknowledging their need and accepting Christ as Savior. God, show yourself mighty. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, Brother Les. Thank you very, very much for being God's servant and bringing us God's message this morning. I want to thank you as well and thank your wife, Charlene, for your life example. Still going at it, still going full tilt. When what Les told us at the pastor's meeting on Friday, and he said again to our men yesterday, he said at our age we're going all these miles, put in over 100,000 miles last year. When we should be in the nursing home doing wheelchair bowling? Is that what you what you said? But going to the end. And thank God for that. Thank you for your model. And thank you for your life. And I encourage you all to get by and thank Les and Charlene for being with us. Now, Les is going to speak during the second hour uh, to our adults in this room. So we'll have uh, some more benefit from his ministry. But during our refreshment time, make sure you come by and say hello to them and thank them for their ministry and for being with us. For any of you who have heard for the first time, perhaps, the message that Les gave about reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ, that's what we're here to do. We're here to help you with that. If you would like to know more about that, then please see me. See me today before you leave. Uh, Turn in a note at our information center, and they'll get it to me, and we'll get with you this week so that we can discuss this most important issue, all right? Let's stand together for our closing song.